Well, it is a joy uh, to be able to worship the Lord this morning with all of you. Um, I know for a fact that you pray for us. You prayed for us this morning, and uh, we know that you love us there in Aldana. And uh, we pray for you, and we love you as well. So uh, we think of you fondly often. Um, This is my first chance that I've had to to be with you in a main service. So I'm I'm grateful to be here. Um, And I'm looking forward to uh, hopefully many years of fellowship and partnership in the gospel. And now... It is my privilege to declare the word of the Lord this morning to us in the form of a sermon. So our our text for this morning is from Luke chapter 15. So if you'd like to turn to that, it's Luke chapter 15, uh, the entirety of the chapter. I will read that for us now. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that is Jesus, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing, And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp And sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said this to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything... A severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But 
While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come home, has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. How many people in this room enjoy some kind of sport to watch? You don't have to raise your hand. Just think to yourself, is that me or is this not? If that's not you, I'm pretty sure you'll be able to follow this illustration anyway. Imagine that is you, and you're in a place with your friends in front of a big screen, great sound, great color. You're watching your favorite sport, your favorite team. You're rooting for them, and then... The game-changing moment happens. The play is made. The score is made. And what happens next is electrifying. The entire room comes to life. People are shouting. People are jumping out of their chairs. People are hoping nobody's taking their picture because they don't want to see what they look like right now because their team has just scored that decisive point. But then, you look to the couple sitting next to you, and they're doing nothing at all. They're just sitting there thinking, grumble, 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 grumble. What's wrong with them? You know what's wrong with them. They're not a fan of your team. They're rooting for the other team. So you take your drink and your potato chips and do this. Right? Well, something like that is going on in the beginning of our chapter. We see that Jesus is receiving sinners and tax collectors. And in the first two parables that we read, what happens? Well, we, we have a sinner repenting. We have a, a sheep that is found. 
We have a coin that is recovered. But, but what are the Pharisees and the scribes doing as they see the sinners and the tax collectors being received by Jesus? Oh, grumble, 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 right? And immediately you think, what's wrong with them? Well, then you know what's wrong with them. They're not on God's team. Jesus is not too indirectly pointing this out and saying these Pharisees, these scribes, they're for plans, but they're not for the plan that God has. God has a different plan, and it's one that they don't cheer for. Well, that's one of the things that is going on in our passage But there's more than that going on in our passage. In fact, there are three things that are three central gospel truths that I'd like us to see in our chapter this morning. So those truths are these. One, only sinners. Two, only grace. And three, only Jesus. Only sinners, only grace, and only Jesus. So let's start with only sinners. Look what Jesus does in this first parable. Did you you notice how he starts his his three-parable presentation? He says, he's with the, the Pharisees and the scribes, don't forget. He says, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, and he goes on from there, what man of you, Jesus is intentionally drawing his audience in. And let's just assume they're they're drawn in, that this is effective. And all of a sudden, the Pharisees and the scribes are thinking, I wonder what he's going to ask us to consider. He says, well, what man of you, if you have a hundred sheep and you lose one, is not going to leave those 99 in the open country and go find that one and bring it back? And you can imagine the the Pharisees and the scribes thinking, hmm, I mean, we are upset with him because he's allowing the the tax collectors and the sinners to draw near to him. But what we're hearing now is that he's really just ministering to the margins, to that one Jew who we lost, we don't know how, and he's out there somewhere. Maybe, maybe we need that. Maybe we need someone to, to go chase down that one lost sheep, that one percent of the people of Israel that don't stay in the flock and stay the course. But Jesus isn't done. Now, in the next story, Jesus has 10 silver coins. And one of these coins is lost. And the woman sweeps the house and finds the coin, recovers the coin, brings it back, And you can imagine the Pharisees and the scribes getting together again and thinking, well, that changed a little bit, didn't it? I mean, before, there were a hundred sheep, one went away, ministry to the margin, that one percent. But this time, we have ten coins, and one of them is lost. Well, that's not one percent anymore. Maybe it's just a story. It would be kind of weird for the woman to have a hundred coins. We'll we'll go with it. Okay, so Jesus is ministry to the ten percent now. But Jesus is not done. Now, Jesus tells a third parable. And how does he start his third parable? A man has 
two sons. Oh, wait a minute. I mean, first it was one out of a hundred. Then it was one out of ten. And now you're saying it's one out of two. You think that 50% of us need this ministry that you have to people. Who do you think you are, Jesus? Although what they find out rather quickly by the end of the story is that it's worse than that, right? Because by the end of the story, what is supposed to be the good son and the son that very clearly represents at least the Pharisees and the scribes, this older son is disagreeing with his father, disrespecting his father, sinning against his father outside of the house. That's 100%. Jesus is claiming in this chapter that 100% of the people around him, including those righteous-looking Pharisees and scribes, are sinners. And that's how we see in our chapter only sinners. But there's another gospel truth that comes out of our passage this morning, and that is only grace. Now, to see how this truth comes out in our passage, I think we need to ponder repentance and get our heads around what Luke means when he says repent or repentance. What do you think of when you hear the word repentance? Well, maybe you think you're turning away from something, changing your mind and turning to something else. And Christianity will often say it's, it's turning away from sin and turning towards God, and it does mean that. But Luke does something different with repentance when it's between man and God, because there is a worksy way to think about repentance. In fact, you might find that sometimes even in yourself, but certainly in someone that you might run across someday. When you talk about repentance, very quickly, the topic turns to, to penance and whether you're, you're turning hard enough and whether you're continuing to turn hard enough. And before you know it, you have some deal that you've made with God that if you turn hard enough from your sin, you're okay, but only if you keep working at it. Well, Luke... In the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote, goes through great pains to resist this tendency, to, to cut it out of our thinking, and to make sure that's never the way we approach the concept of repentance as he means it in the Gospel and as he means it in the book of Acts. Let me show you what I mean as we turn to another place in the Scriptures in Acts chapter 2. So in Acts chapter 2, Jesus has died on the cross, Jesus has rose from the grave, Jesus has ascended to come back again, uh, Jesus has now, as promised, the Holy Spirit has come at Pentecost, and Peter is preaching a sermon at Pentecost, and in this sermon, 
he demonstrates from the Old Testament who Jesus is. He preaches this sermon to the people of Israel, and the conclusion of that sermon is that you all killed your Messiah. That is the punchline of Peter's sermon, all right? Now, you don't come back from something like that, right? Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, and it was a very long time before God had the people of Israel enter the promised land where they proceeded to worship idols and disobey the Lord. And they were exiled from that land. And it was a very long time before God sent the promised anointed one, the Messiah. And what did Israel do to its Messiah? Killed their Messiah. So what are you thinking if you're one of the people of Israel listening to this sermon that Peter's just preached to you, and you know that he's right? Well, let's see what they do. This is the end of Peter's sermon, Acts 2, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that is Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. They killed their Messiah. And yet, they were given an opportunity to repent. Peter says you can still join him. Christ's offer is that even though you murdered him, you can still join him. He can still be yours. You can still be his people. Repent and be baptized. And as we keep looking, we see that repentance rather than being turned into something that you are constantly making sure, am I turning, am I turning? It's called a gift that God gives to his people. So if you read a little further on in Acts 5, verses 27 and 32, we see there that, that Peter preaches a similar sermon, the you killed your Messiah sermon to the high priest. Now, it doesn't go over the same way with the high priest. Let's see that in verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them. This is the apostles saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. 
And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And not too many chapters later, we see that the gospel also goes to the Gentiles. And when the gospel goes to the Gentiles, and Peter comes back to the church in Jerusalem, and he gives, him, gives them his report, look at how the church in Jerusalem responds in Acts chapter 11, verse 18. When they, the church in Jerusalem, heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted the same word for gift that we saw before. He has granted, he has gifted repentance that leads to life. It might sound to you like I'm preaching a different sermon than I was before, but I assure you that I'm not. Because if we go back to Luke chapter 15, we run into a quandary unless we understand repentance in exactly this way, as a gift from God. Because in our first parable, what do we have? We have a sheep, and he is lost. And we have a shepherd, an owner that goes and finds that sheep and brings him back. And the conclusion of that parable is heaven is rejoicing because a sinner repented. What did that sheep do? Nothing. He was rescued. That was his repentance. He was rescued. That's how Jesus says to reflect on that story. With the coin, which I would wager could do even less than a sheep, is lost in the house. The woman sweeps. The woman finds. The woman takes it back. It's now found, rejoices with her friends. What's the conclusion of the story? The angels before God are rejoicing because a sinner repented. What did the coin do? The coin did, it was a gift. Their rescue was a gift. If you're a Christian, it isn't because you turned your life around. It's because you have been given this gift of repentance. You, you shouldn't be able to have the riches made available to us in Christ. But that is what we are given in Christ. Repentance is a gift. Repentance is a grace, we could call it. Well, armed with this understanding... Let's join the, uh, the younger son in the pig pen, shall we? Now, different people have different ideas about what it means when it says that the younger son comes to himself or comes to his senses, okay? Some people mark this as the beginning of the younger son's spiritual life. Now, some people on the opposite side say, no, no, this is the son yet again seeking self-preservation, He's about to die, and he's trying to figure out how to avoid it. And some people pick a path in the middle. And I will leave it to you to discuss over lunch which one you think is true. But the thing I want us to focus on is the speech, the speech that the younger son prepares for his father. He's dying. He's starving in the pig pen. He says, what am I thinking? I, I could go be a servant for my father. They have enough to eat. And so he prepares this speech, and his speech goes like this. 
Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. But did you notice that he never actually gets to deliver the last part of his speech? It doesn't happen. By the time he, he gets to the Father, the Father's already seen him. In fact, we can, we can read there in verse 20, but while he, that's the younger son, was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. He's not gotten to his speech yet. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And that's it. But the father said to his servants, bring the robe, put it on him, bring the ring, put shoes on his feet, kill the fattened calf and all the rest. He never says, treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, whether the father just interrupted the son because he doesn't want him to say that part, or, or whether the son is receiving such unexpected, gracious, restorative treatment from his father that giving that part of the speech just doesn't make much sense. Well, we don't know. The story doesn't tell us. But what is clear is this. The extent of the father's generosity and compassion leaves no room for negotiation on the son's part. It leaves no room for the negotiation that the son had in his mind on the way over. And aren't you glad? Have you ever thought about what it would be like if, if God accepted such negotiations? If we walked around this room and instead of shaking each other's hands and giving each other's hugs and, and saying, brother, sister, servant, because you, you didn't get it all the way back and God says, yeah, you were pretty bad. You get to be a servant. You're not high enough to be the brother or the sister in the room. You're the servant. Can you imagine if that was the case? God has made us children in Christ. He didn't make any deals that are different than that. That's always how he does it. He makes us his children. And this gives us an opportunity to talk about the gospel in more than one way. And I think what I want to do right now is illustrate that to you by talking about a very small window in United States gun history. You're like, oh, these Americans and their guns, please. Yeah, I'm, I'm as surprised as you that I'm doing this illustration. I gave it to my wife. And she said, quote, that was better than I thought it would be. <laughs> so with that glowing endorsement, here it goes. In the 1800s, in the wild American West, before the Colt 45 was developed by Colonel James Colt, you would have a big guy and you would have a little guy. And the big guy would come to the little guy, and the little guy would have his lunch, and the big guy would say, give me your lunch. And the little guy would say, no, I don't want to give you my lunch. And the big guy would say, I'm bigger than you. And the little guy would say, all right, give him his lunch. After Colonel James Colt developed the 45 revolver, 
in the 1800s in the American Wild West. The big guy and the little guy both had such an instrument. The big guy would come to the little guy and say, give me your lunch. And the little guy would say, no, I don't want to give you my lunch. And the big guy would say, I'm bigger than you. And the little guy would say, yeah, but are you faster than me? And the big guy would say, you can keep your lunch. <laughs> and he would walk away. And on the little handle of these instruments, different versions of this little poem would be written. Be not afraid of any man who walks beneath the skies. Though he be big, though you be small, I will equalize. Now, why do I tell you this little bit of United States gun history? Well, it's to tell you this, that we actually have doctrines in the Bible that equalize, okay? Now, we just heard about one of them, right? Not 1%, not 10%, not 50%, 100% of us are sinners. That's a doctrine in the Bible, the doctrine of sin. We are all under sin. We are all made small by sin because we are sinners. Sin is one of the great equalizers among us. But did you know that if you're a Christian, so is grace. Grace is also an equalizer among us. And that changes everything, doesn't it? Because it means not only do you have something that takes the, the big guy down to size. When somebody walks to you with a, a very worksy sounding plan for salvation, you say, no, no, that's not the gospel. I know. We're all under sin. You think you have something to offer God? You don't. We're dead in our sins. I know you, th no, I won't hear it. That's not the gospel. And that's the right thing to do. But, but did you know that there are different hearts in which people develop these worksy salvation kinds of things? Some of them come from very very proud hearts. But what do we see in our passage? In Luke 15, we see a younger son who is ignorant and desperate. We, we see a younger son who is small, and if you came to him and said, younger son, I have news for you, you are under sin. He would say, I know. Smell me. I'm the worst. My father will probably kill me on sight, but this is the last thing I have to do, is go see if there's anything I can give him that would let him come to terms with receiving me back as a laborer. Then I might live. Well, with that, with that person, we also have something from the gospel to share, and not just to that person, but to our own hearts. That under grace, he doesn't need to do that. In fact, he doesn't have to. In fact, he can't. The grace that the Father gives us allows for no such negotiation. It is free, 
and it is full. And it seems too good to be true, but it is. That's the message that you can give such a person, that God will not allow His children anything less than a full pardon, that God will not let you receive anything less than Christ's stunning righteousness, that God will not let you factor in your own unworthiness to negotiate anything less than that which was purchased for you on the cross of the Lord Jesus to fully reconcile you to God, to achieve an intimate and rich, life-giving, secure relationship with Him as His child. We're equalized by sin, brothers and sisters, but we're also equalized by that grace. Amen? Well, the third gospel truth that I would like us to look at from this chapter is only Jesus. So we've seen only sin, only grace, and now only Jesus. Well, let's go back to the very beginning. A very good place to start, but not a very good place to end. We started in the beginning of this sermon with us looking at the Pharisees and the scribes, not cheering for the right team. Now, you might think, well, that's a very simplistic way to put it, and you'd be right, because there's a lot more going on in the Pharisees' hearts than just cheering for the wrong team. In fact, uh, it might be helpful to read a little quote from Michael Reeves in his book, uh, Evangelical Pharisees, uh, intriguing title, and I'll read something from page 22. He says there, for the Pharisees, and here he's talking about the Pharisees in the Bible, not the ones in evangelicalism, for the Pharisees, it all began with a basic posture of the heart, looking down. They looked down on others as they compared themselves with them, and they looked down to others to receive praise from them. But in looking down, they never saw what was above them. They never saw the high glory of God. They thought they did, of course, but it was only by reading the approval of others as the approval of God, only by reading the glory of God as something very like their own glory. Looking down, they never imagined a God in whose presence they could stand only if He had a mercy they did not. They never considered the loving nature of the God who was so beyond them and so different from them. Now, if we look at the Pharisees and the scribes, they're being called out as not being on God's team. But they're not on God's team because they, they don't look up. They only look down on others and receive praise from others and are satisfied with their own glory. So if we want to take something away from this chapter, we can say we don't want to do that. We've seen who Christ is. We've seen our loving Heavenly Father. We've looked up in this chapter, and we see who He is, and He's better. He's better 
than whatever the older son or the younger son was striving for. What did we, what did we read about in Psalm 16 this morning? That those who, who run after another God, their sorrows will be multiplied? But at the end of that chapter, what do we see before God's throne? There are joys, joys forevermore. But there's something else to see, I think. Because I think when we read a chapter like this, we think, well, how do, how do I apply this exactly? I know that I've seen the gospel. I've seen only sinners, only grace, only Jesus. Definitely factors into those first two. But like if I'm reading this chapter by myself and I, and I see that Jesus is telling them, you know, you didn't, you didn't cheer when the sinner repented. You didn't cheer when that sinner repented. You didn't cheer when that young son returned to the father and they were all celebrating. You, you insisted on, on not cheering. And it would be easy superficially to come away and say, I think to apply this passage, I just need a cheer when God tells me I'm supposed to cheer. I'm supposed to say, yay. And so when you see something happen that looks spiritual, you say, yay. You say it. And you think, well, that wasn't very convincing. And so you dig a little deeper. Yay. And it just feels empty. And if, if we weren't talking about God here, we could say that it, it sounds like what dictators do when they, when they line the path, right? And they put up a sign and they're like, all right, crowd, cheer now. And they all cheer, right? All right, you're good. They put it down. They're like, okay, we're back to, our, back to ourselves again. Is, is, that, is that how we're meant to apply Luke 15? Is that our closing takeaway? Well, you probably know by now I'm going to say no. That is not our takeaway. What we are given in our passage is not a heavy responsibility to cheer for God a little louder. Now, what we are given in our passage is Christ. That's what we're given. The application of this passage is not to do something better than I did it before. No, it's, it's to see something, or rather someone, more clearly than I saw him before, that we have a committed Savior. Our Lord is not insecure in his mission to save sinners. We don't see Christ vacillating as the religious leaders of his day say, no, not them. Are you kidding me? No, instead he tells these three parables. And he doesn't just show his commitment to sinners by telling parables in their defense. Now he goes to the cross for us. Only Jesus would do that. Only Jesus could do that. And only Jesus did do that. And there's no need for any of us to, to jump up on the cross and start spilling blood with him. No, it's, it's done. He did it all. That's what it means. That's part of what it means to be equal under grace. Such that you and I, brothers and sisters, can sit down and we can look at that cross and we can say, you know what? That cross is for me. I deserve that. Only sinners. And we can sit down and we can look at that cross and we can point to that cross. Same cross. That cross is for me. God rescued me. 
And that is from him. Only grace. I'd like to close this morning by reading just a few verses from Romans 3. Romans 3, starting at verse 22, the end of verse 22 says this, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, only sinners, and are justified by His grace as a gift, only grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, only Jesus. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for the gospel. God, it would be good news that in your mercy you didn't crush us. But the news is so much better than that. By your grace, we have been made your children, even though 100% of us don't deserve that. We have received from your hand such a blessing. Indeed, there are joys forevermore before your throne. And a God like you, holding our lot, our inheritance, is a wonderful thing. God, we, we worship you, we praise you, we adore you, and we thank you for making us your children. In Christ's name, amen.